Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder and CEO of Power Digital Marketing, Grayson LaFriends. Grayson has a true entrepreneurial story, launching a super successful company only after many preceding failed businesses. Those failures brought him to starting Power Digital in 2012 with a focus on individualized digital strategies. They have experienced incredible success over the last nine years, now serving countless clients and helping the community with their nonprofit EM Power Digital. So Grayson, my new friend, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Drew, thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you. Yeah. So tell me, how, how, how did this how did this company uh, birth? How did we get here? Yeah, I think probably similar to a lot of uh, entrepreneurial stories, but I had uh, two partners, actually. One was my college roommate, Robert Rodriguez, and the other one was my cousin, uh, Nick Slettengren. And um, uh, Robert and I both graduated from the University of Arizona. We graduated in 2007, which unbeknownst to me as a kind of dumb, clueless college graduate, it turned out wasn't the best economic time. And so I actually tried to start a company right out of college. That's where I had gotten introduced to entrepreneurship. And uh, I got rejected by about 30 investors, finally uh, got in front of a very successful entrepreneur who basically told me, hey, uh, you need to give this one up. Your idea is actually pretty good, but you have no experience, you have no skill set, and you're never going to raise money to start this business. And so I asked him, hey, if I want to be an entrepreneur, what skill set do I need to have? And I thought it was a pretty fair point that he had. And he said, you need to learn to be a rainmaker. The most successful entrepreneurs I know are all rainmakers and can really drive and grow revenue. So at the time in 2007, that was really sales. And so he actually referred me to the largest agency of Xerox and this guy, JT, who full, full circle is our COO at Power Digital now. And he told me this guy, JT, is the best developer of sales talent as well as managers and leaders. You need to go work for him. So that was the the first job that I ever took after college and the only job that I've ever had. And I worked there for three years. I learned a ton. And then I left there to start my uh, first business and started, uh, it was about four companies before Power Digital. The uh, fourth one was having a ton of success. and thought it was gonna kind of be the, the big one. I was probably 25 years old and uh, got into a really big lawsuit. So I actually got sued by a billionaire, fought him for about a year. I feel like I uh, really learned the legal uh, system through that because we were pretty scrappy with the attorneys that we had and kind of how we fought it. And uh, you know, we ended up essentially winning the lawsuit, but it had some stipulations that made it almost impossible to do business. And so throughout the journey, I'd really learned e-commerce and digital marketing and uh, had also seen a big gap in, this, in, in the category where I had been on the other side of the table hiring agencies and it was a lot of fluff, a lot of stuff that didn't drive what I was looking for, which is how do I scale and drive revenue and do so profitably? Um, because in doing that, the rest of the engine, you know, is a lot easier to solve for. And so that was the gap that we wanted to fill as we wanted to bring, you know, real strategy for the e-commerce ecosystem specifically that would help them scale revenue and do so in a profitable fashion. And that's kind of how Power Digital started. So it was the very end Dang. of 2012. <laughs> that's a lot of experience wrapped up into, it sounds like, you know, half a decade or a decade, you know, at most. 
I want to go back to learning to be a, a rainmaker. I love, I love that phrase. What did you learn about that in the three years that you were under this person that he recommended? What were some of the things that you learned that really stood out to, to become that rainmaker? Yeah. So first of all, I was, this person was running the whole sales org and I think they probably had 500 or so people at that time. So me as a 22 year old college grad, I wasn't under him. I actually got lucky because my manager, uh, it's a story for another time, got fired uh, in a flame of uh, fire and smoke. It was pretty bad the way that it went down. And so then temporarily they're like, JT, you need to manage this team. And so that's how he became my temporary boss. And then yeah. I, uh, I didn't let him get rid of me. But I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I believe in a lot and we encourage with our team members is being a sponge. And so I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I was lucky because the company that I was working for, it was providing B2B services across a lot of different business models and clients. And so I really got to understand those clients' problems and how do they make decisions and what is the CEO worried about, et cetera. And then I also sat right outside the president of the company's office. And so I would listen to him. I'd listen to his convos. I'd watch what happened. And um, the bigger corporate companies tend to have more structure, better training, et cetera. And so I really learned how to sell, how to prospect, drive business, how to sell. Then I went from top individual performer to manager, which was a very hard transition. And I think people think that comes natural, but it doesn't. And I think it's usually probably hardest amongst top performers because things yeah. natural to me. And I was like, why don't you understand this? I fell into all the normal new manager traps of just doing it for them or uh, whatever that was. And so I, I learned how to manage and lead a team and, and, and do that type of thing. And then also we launched a lot of new products when I was there because the um, copier industry, which was the traditional industry, had become really commoditized. So we launched professional services, software, et cetera, so that we can avoid that commoditization and continue to have strong margins and ways to differentiate ourselves. And then lastly is the company actually sold and was acquired by a subsidiary of Xerox while I was there too. Mm. And so I got to watch that process as well. So I felt like when I left there, I'd been there, I was there for three years, you know, my first three years after graduating college. And I felt like I left there with an MBA while I'd also been able to make some good money. And I was really frugal and saved that. Um, and I think that's what allowed me to kind of persevere through the entrepreneurial uh, starting point is I was able to take, you know, risks with my time because I had saved money and I had that bank account and I had, you know, some skill sets around how to sell and build sales organizations, how to manage people and motivate them and how to really be a consultant because that's what we were doing. So how to yeah. kind of get the root of problems that, that executives were facing and help, you know, help them find solutions. So that was probably the biggest things that I learned, but it was really, I feel like it's been one of the biggest advantages that I've had in my career was, was, you know, learning those things at a really early age. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned this a little bit, you know, the idea of being a consultant inside of sales and discovering the problem and that kind of thing. But I would, I would just love to hear you speak to it more in terms of what do you think makes a fantastic salesperson versus the average of the struggling salesperson? Yeah, I think it depends on what you're, what you're selling. And I think people look at that word really differently. Like I don't believe in relationship selling, for example, I think certainly you want to have a great relationship with the client and all that helps, but that's not scalable because if you're just relying on relationships, it just doesn't scale. Yeah. So I think uh, with consultative selling, it's, you know, ultimately uh, a skill set that can be used in a lot of different areas. So it's not just for clients. It could be for attracting talent, uh, partners, uh, whatever that is. It's really understanding what people are trying to accomplish 
and then seeing if there's a way that you can help them accomplish those goals. And a lot of times they don't even really fully know what they're telling you they're trying to accomplish might not be what it is. So super common in our business, for example, uh, uh, old example, somebody comes to us, they're like, hey, we want to do content marketing and SEO. Okay, that's great. Hey, why? What are the goals you're trying to get? Well, we need to drive big fourth quarter revenue. And, you know, it's uh, almost September now. Well, those aren't going to be the right channels if you're trying to get that type of immediate growth. So then it's our job to ultimately show them, you know, how if, if they can get the growth that they want and how they can get it. Yeah. But I think it comes down to being great at asking questions and really getting to the root of what they're telling you and what they're trying to do. And then being able to really turn over the stones and show them uh, in advance that you really understand their problem, you understand what they're trying to do, and that uh, you could be a part of that solution. And so that's what it comes down to. And I think the same can be said for, again, helping top performers realize their potential, recruiting team members, uh, aligning yourself with channel partners and those types of relationships, investors and what they're trying to accomplish and building that trust. Uh, it's really universal to business in my opinion. Uh, I love that. So we, you know, I told you before the podcast, I run a business outside of this. And before that it was just, you know, basically self-employed, right? So that's not the same thing as running a business, but I had, I had just had my own book of business as a, as a coach out in the world and it had grown organically. Then as we start our actual business and we're needing to accelerate growth and have it come, you know, actually reliably and through a pipeline and that kind of thing, I had to start to learn how to have actual sales conversations. And I was very bad at it, you know, just because the, the thing I realized, we hired a sales coach who was phenomenal and he helped me see maybe, you know, we record the conversations, play it back for him. And he was just ripping me to shreds like 30 seconds in. And that was the main thing he kept pushing on me is like, you're just trying to make, the, you're just trying to become friends, you know, or I was playing coach too fast and you're trying to just give them solutions. And he was like, you need to be a doctor. You need to be a doctor. And he was like, you're a fantastic coach. You're a terrible salesperson. And I was like, all right, well help me. And that was it. That was it. Like a process of discovery. Like how do we actually discover? And that was the thing he said as well is that don't, don't uh, take their word for it that they know what their problem is. You know, that's where you need to be the expert. And I just realized, like, it wasn't just the questions. It was even, like, settling into the conversation and being able to see it at a bigger scope than where, you know, there's a few times I didn't realize he said I was leading the witness. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, no, nah, you got an agenda. I could tell you have an agenda of where you wanted that conversation to go. And I was like, oh, man. And so, anyways, I feel like I'm talking to another version of him with you right now where that was just a challenging, like, an actual skill. We always... It's like, no, this is a skill that I, I took repetition. It took correction. It took like, I thought I did the right thing, but you're showing me I did the wrong thing, uh, you know, and, but it gave me hope that you could learn that, that that's a skill that could be learned. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I think that it's really interesting because where I see most entrepreneurs um, kind of fail and not be able to get it to the next level. So they create a job for themselves. That's great. And you create a company that doesn't require you. That's real entrepreneurism in my opinion. Yep. Where I see most of them fail is they start as a, a founder-led sales organization. And uh, that I think that's like important and kind of what you need to do to develop the process. If you've got tech enablement, you know, and to get that kind of ember burning and, and make it easier, but then they're never able to, you know, get out of that seat and make it truly scalable. And I think that's a lot of times the hardest part, because I think as a founder entrepreneur, usually you can get away with things by your um, you know, background and your experiences, your personal uh, 
ability to build relationships and yep. know people, et cetera. You're uh, being able to talk C-level to C-level and understand their problems. When you want to then scale that and you need to have 20 people doing that or 50 people doing that, they're not going to be able to lean on those same kind of crutches. And so yep. that's really where I think the consultative selling approach comes in. And so at Power Digital, what we did is we developed a platform called Nova that essentially is a first party data platform that does that. And so it will plug into an e-commerce brand's first party data. It will score every channel, uh, customer acquisition channel, and we'll, we'll tell them how they're currently performing. It will forecast the lift that they can experience based on addressing these gaps. It'll handicap channels that they're not playing in. And so uh, that kind of tech enablement allows us to take really great marketers and turn wow. them into consultative salespeople which works a lot better than trying to take a salesperson and turn them into a great marketer. And so I think that there's ways that companies, uh, you know, can do that, can evolve, but I think it, you know, you know, it needs to be planned for from the start. Otherwise it becomes really hard to kind of get off that founder led unscalable uh, sales engine uh, issue. Man. So good. That, that, that's honestly where we're at, you know, <laughs> is getting out of that and, I, and we're going to do it. But like you said, it, I think it is more difficult having not had the experience and know not to start off that way. Right. Um, how did you come across the idea for Nova? You know, so when we were at uh, Xerox, we had developed, uh, we didn't build it ourselves. I think that they had some engineers that did, but you know, we were trying to avoid this commoditized industry because when somebody just comes to you and says, Hey, can you design this graphic or can you uh, help me close the books on this? Or can you coach me on this one thing? it becomes commoditized. You know, you're, you know, they're just asking themselves, can they solve this problem I have and can they do it efficiently and what I like to do with them. But when you can help somebody solve a business problem where they don't know the solution, then you're really in that strategic seat. Yeah. And so that's what we were really trying to do at zero. So that's where I originally got the idea. And then, um, you know, when we had started, you know, we were asking people to work with us and to help them scale their company, but we had no uh, track record to point to. We had, you know, we were brand new. And so we needed a way to be able to, you know, prove to them that we really understood their business and that we knew what needed to be done to scale their business. So that's kind of how it started. And it was more process in the first year. And then that process was not going to be scalable. And there was a big gap between, you know, let's say if I did that and I did it to the ultimate level versus another team member and, you know, that experience level is different, et cetera. And so we were like, how do we make this scalable so that we can do thousands of these a year? And then how do we make it so the quality is as high as possible? And so that we start to get shared learnings across industries and business problems, et cetera. And so that's kind of how it was birthed. And we started to invest in that kind of in our first year, our first real year in business. And it was very wow. bootstrapped and it was just taking profit that the company was kicking off and investing it. And now we have, I think, 20 team members that only work on the software platform, um, which really is our business is a tech enabled service business. And so that's really what has enabled our growth rate. And we've got really industry leading growth rates, uh, our employee development retention, which we, we have a 98% employee uh, retention uh, historical metric, which is best in class in the industry. Uh, you know, our growth rate this year should be over 70%, which at our scale, you know, we'll do about 80 million in revenue. So that's, uh, that's a pretty big growth rate for a company of that scale. Uh, the technology is what really enables us to do all of that and have the margins that we have while we grow that quickly and, and all those types of things. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? That is super impressive. The employee retention rate and the growth rate. How does technology enable, enable and support those? 
Yeah. So, I mean, our culture at its core is a growth mindset. And so within the Nova platform, we have Nova talent, which basically allows us to profile the perfect uh, skill set mix for each role in the company. And so we're able to really identify as we're bringing on new talent, what do they have today? And, and then where do we really need to focus on development? And so for us, you know, we feel that certain skills can be developed, but core values can't. You either kind yeah. of have them and you embody them and you align with them or you don't. So it allows us to really recruit and bring in the right talent. And I mean, we're adding probably 30 team members a month um, on the average month right now. So, you know, if you're just trying to kind of ham and egg that together, you're going to have some big issues and you're going to get the wrong people. So it enables us to do that. Um, our team members are really driven by uh, the bigger vision that we're on and improving and getting better and being a part of something. And so we share everything with our team. So financials, uh, profit, et cetera. And so the platform has real-time dashboards that share all that, has scorecards for every single role that shows them how they're doing, how they stack up to others. Um, you know, based on Nova Talent, where their gaps are, it gives them both self-serve curriculums that we have in the platform where they can go improve in this area. We also have a full-time employee development person that's able to use that data to do really custom one-to-one -one mentorship and training as well as wow. classroom types of stuff. So it's a lot of those things on the, uh, on the talent front. And then on the growth front, um, yeah, our business is really heavy reoccurring. And one of the things that's unique to us is we have fully guaranteed contracts. So there's no out clauses. And most people in our industry would tell you, oh, we have a 12 month contract. Uh, it's reoccurring revenue. But if you look at the contract, there's a 30 or a 60 day out. So in real life, that's a one or two month contract. It's really hard to build a great business when you don't know if your revenue is going to be there um, or when you're really project dependent. And so, uh, you know, you, you can't see down the playing field. Yeah. So um, those guaranteed contracts are enabled by our technology because of the Nova appraisal and the work that we do before we ever engage with a brand to see if there's a good core values fit, to see if we can help them hit their goals and to assure that uh, there's alignment on those things. And then ultimately the software builds the plan to do so. And it's a 12 month plan. And so they know exactly what we're gonna be doing each month and there's really clear accountability. And uh, a lot of times they're super heavy lifting early on. So the software actually bundles that pricing so that they don't have this crazy uh, you know, fee up front per se. And so it really enables us to have really predictable growth and to have a model where we could look down the field and I can tell you exactly what we're going to do in November and December of this year and January and February, which allows us to make really proactive strategic decisions to drive. Yeah. Growth. It also at times allows us to wait longer to make harder decisions. So like through COVID, it allowed us to wait longer than others to make, you know, uh, moves there and really see, how, wait longer, see how things shake out and not be super reactive and knee jerk on things. And so it's a lot of those types of areas that the technology has allowed us to grow really quickly while also uh, you know, retaining our talent, empowering people and getting better. Damn, I'm super impressed. Uh, at, at what you have built out for your employee development is man, stellar, as well as what it sounds like you're developing for the actual clients that you are serving and I cannot decide where I want to hear more first. Uh, let's start with what you just talked about. So on the on the customer side, without sharing anything that you'd feel like maybe is a trade secret or, or anything, so feel free to protect anything like that, uh, how do you see what you're doing as being different or, or competitively uh, better than the hundreds of other digital marketing agencies out there that aren't growing at the rate that you're growing? What is it that you think you guys are nailing on the head? 
Yeah, I think it's really easy to succeed in our industry and it comes down to, to two things. Number one, you have the most talented team and you have really good um, consistency in that team. So you're not turning people over and you have a growth mindset and you, uh, you don't have egos that get in the way of the team goal. And so we have that. We have incredible people. We get better every single day, every week, every month. We don't turn people over. And everybody sees the bigger picture and knows that, you know, we win as a team, we lose as a team and that both are going to happen. And our young people, our industry is a young person's game in terms of innovation. And so my job and our leadership team's job is to have the young people that are really in touch with where the industry is going and to give them the structure, the confidence, the space to innovate and take some chances and not be afraid to do so. So that side and then the other side is really if we if you have the best technology that gives you these advantages, which we do, everything from first party data analysis to strategy building, to uh, real time alerts and triggers to the employee development, et cetera, then uh, you combine those two things that makes it really easy to win and succeed. And so we're able to pick the right clients that are poised for big time growth, make sure that there's good core values alignment. I mean, we want to work with clients where we're in the boat together. Uh, the best idea wins, doesn't matter if it's ours or theirs. Once we determine the best idea and the data supports it, we're going to go all in and execute against it. Um, and uh, where we're both really vested in each other and, and helping each other win and succeed. So with the technology that we have in that uh, technical sales process, it really allows us to, to ascertain those things. And then with the forecasting, it allows us to really align on goals and the path to get there and the, and the payback period and the timeline. So our business on the client side is about, you know, getting great clients, helping them grow and retaining them for the long, long haul, because we've got about eight years of data that show the, uh, the more services that we're providing for a client, the better the results that they get, the longer they stay with us and the more profitable it is for us. Mm. So uh, we need to land the right clients. Usually when we're getting a new client, on average, it has three services. We have about 15 total. And then our average client has about five. So as we grow them, you know, to that five, everybody wins, uh, you know, through that kind of playbook that I mentioned. So is there, is there a consistent three that they, that most typically start with, or is all those 15, it totally depends on who they are that you start with a different three of those services. Yeah. It's totally customized to their business, where they are in the, in the journey, who their customer is, what's the talent that they have within their organization. What are they doing really well? That's currently working. What's not, what looks like it could. You know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, so if they've got something that's working great, you know, we want to maybe show them how they can lean harder into that and get even more out of it or these other things that can really complement that. And so if that's proven to work, these things will work too. Mm. Uh, so it's really based on that Nova appraisal and, you know, at its core, looking at their first party data and really making uh, those data-driven decisions. And so we're not trying to fit people into a service line that we have or a bucket we're trying to diagnose where they can go get the growth and they can do so in a fashion that makes business sense and aligns with the, the economics that they need to hit. I was going to say that, you know, usually customizable stuff like that makes it less scalable, right? Yeah. More time intensive. But, but then my thought was, well, I guess Nova is taking care of that. If, if you have some machine learning or you have a software system that's leading you to a certain course or another, is that doing the heavy lifting that makes the customiza customization more scalable? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think when you talk about commodity businesses and solution businesses, anything that's uh, cookie cutter is typically going to fit in that commodity bucket, right? Because it's like, all right, here's exactly what we're getting. Let's go shop it out. Let's get the lowest price possible. And that's that.
anything that's a solution like us, it's more about how much money are we going to make, not how much are we going to cost. Yeah. But you point the challenge with solution businesses, how do you make them scalable? Because you're not just doing, you're not a spoke in the wheel doing the same thing again and again and again. And so that's exactly what our technology does for us. So it gives us the best of both worlds. It gives us the solution oriented business that sits in the strategic seat and is more about how much money are we going to make for the brand and also makes it really scalable because uh, the technology is, is really, uh, you know, developing that custom uh, playbook uh, analysis, et cetera, and putting it into a framework that can be more repeatable and executed across the different business units and departments that we have. Okay. So how the hell did you develop the software? Like this, it's, it's so intelligent and it's able to do such heavy lifting for you. I feel like I wouldn't even know where to start. Did, how, how do you, how do you develop something like this? Yeah, we have a super talented team um, and we have a big advantage in building this because we built this to solve our own problems. So we yeah. are the customer and we have about 500 team members now and they're the, uh, some of the best of the best performance marketers across pretty much every digital customer acquisition channel. And so we have this really tight human feedback loop that we've had for many years and then at the core of it, we have a uh, customer data platform that both holds, you know, customer data so that we can see trends and tap into that, but also our own first party data and operational data. And so when you have the combination of you're creating it for yourself and solving your own problems, you have an immediate feedback loop with a really talented, vested target audience. And then you've got large amounts of data that can drive, you know, purely data insights. It gives you a big advantage. And then additionally, our you know, our, our, our business, the services side of our company is, is really profitable and very predictable. And so it enables us to, you know, take those dollars and really invest them in the technology. Yeah. So, the, you know, I think that's what's enabled us to do it. I mean, certainly it's a, you know, we've probably wasted time in the past on things that we're really excited about that don't come to fruition. And then we've also probably been surprised at things that ended up being huge value drivers in what we're trying to do that we maybe didn't think would as much. Um, but it's, a uh, the vision is, uh, is fluid. Um, and we got tons of documentation and tons of requests. And I mean, if we had, we could triple the number of, uh, you know, engineers, data scientists, product people on that side, and we would have plenty of work for them. Mm. And so it's just really trying to balance, you know, uh, how fast we're going, uh, not spreading ourselves too, too thin on too many different, you know, features or aspects of the business and really making them great. And then having a really quick feedback loop. And so one of the things that we believe in both with our service business and the technology is the lean startup methodology and the MVP methodology. And so how do we create the minimally viable version of that product and put it out in the wild and, you know, really let the data tell us, you know, where to focus and what to build. So that's been what we've done. And, and certainly we've made plenty of mistakes and learned a lot of different things along the way, but we've got a, a great leadership team there that does a really, uh, amazing job is that like a specific department or is there a certain group of people that are always responsible for the the innovative idea and, and getting it to the mvp and testing it or does it kind of go project by project or team by team yeah so on the nova side it's the nova team that's the technology team um, i think there's about 20 on that team and so that's their focus they don't do any client work they're you know we uh they're they're just purely focused on our platform and then on the service side, I mean, we started with one core service offering in 2012 and we have 15 now. And again, it comes down to 
in my opinion, in our industry, I've seen some of who I thought were really great players when I was starting off that have become completely irrelevant. And I think that, you know, the key is for the leadership to really empower the young, uh, younger team members that are closer to the trends and what's changing, what's happening, um, and can relate more frankly to the audience that you're going after a lot of times to take chances and innovate. And so that's how we've done it. So typically when we've had a new service, we'll do it for free for clients. Our clients are thrilled about that. And we really get a, you know, see the business impact, validate some things. It's a win-win. And then ultimately we'll see whether our clients are willing to pay and see enough value to pay for that service. And then we'll set financial targets. And then once those are hit, then, you know, we'll go all in on that service. And it's proven that it's viable. There's a market for it. We can do it at a high level. And then we'll invest and really, uh, you know, bring in dedicated resources and build that offering out. So that's how we've, we've done that, you know, at our size now and scale now, we probably shortcut that a little bit and we're able to validate that a little quicker and then uh, make bigger investments and be a little less scrappy than we were probably in the past, which I think is nice and, uh, you know, allows us to grow those offerings quicker and put our you know, flag in the sand on new emerging stuff. Like TikTok's a great example. We've been able to really rapidly grow that offering and it's been a huge advantage for our clients. Um, and we got on that really quick, but we, we did it in a more rapid way than we would have maybe five years ago um, on that front. And so what it's always done for us though, is, you know, I think uh, it allows us to not over plan on certain things and to not go try to think through every scenario that can happen. And just to simply say, look, we think it's viable. Here's our thesis. Let's go validate that. Once that's validated, then there'll be the next series of things that we need to figure out. Because if it doesn't validate that, then we don't need to waste our time on that next step. Um, sure. So it's allowed us to really move fast and be agile and uh, not overcomplicate uh, certain things. Well, you spoke to this a little bit, what my next question was going to be in terms of uh, you comparing how you guys approach, let's say, TikTok now versus how you would have approached it earlier days and my question that i want to ask is what what have you noticed is the difference in leading the company at 500 people versus leading the company at 50 people i'm mean, throwing out random numbers but the stage there and what it required of you or what it was like to be in your seat versus the size of organization you have now and maybe what that what requires of you that's a great question i mean my job is totally different um and it's really been like that you know so it's been what eight years for power digital now or nine years um and, you know, we've one thing that our team would all, uh, you know, say and would recognize is the whole what got us here won't get us there concept it's from a good book. I'm blanking on which one right now, but you probably know. Yeah, but it really is true. And so that's something that we live by. It's not just, hey, this is broken. We need to reinvent. But we really encourage new team members. I mean, I, I give the same obnoxious probably pep talk to every new hire class every time. And it's like, hey, we're bringing you in to ch challenge the status quo. Just because something's working doesn't mean we should be doing it that way you know, we need to get better and we want to do it proactively. So it's, a, we've always really believed in that and we've seen that. And I think, you know, for me and my role as CEO, it's changed a lot and I'll give you some specifics, but you know, it's like, right. When I think I'm starting to kind of get it dialed in, you know, for example, we had a hundred people and I feel like I was really doing that job well. And I was in my flow and I was, I felt, you know, that I would have given myself maybe an A minus uh, B plus, you know, grade. Um, and then, you know, you grow to uh, 300 and, you know, you're back down to a C minus, right? Or average or below average. Yeah. And, you know, you need to evolve. But I think some of the changes, I mean, I'm not in the day to day for new business or for anything with clients or, 
Um, and so that took a lot of adjusting. I think one of my strengths is being, you know, instinctual and um, I learn by doing. And so when I have my hands on things, I could see the path really clearly. And so I've had to learn how to, um, you know, really trust the leaders and get the level of information that's needed for me to still use that strength to make decisions, but also to just, you know, trust uh, in the leaders and, you know, set them up to succeed where they've got really clear KPIs. They've got lanes that they can operate in and really run it their way and do it their way. We have good leading indicators where I can kind of see what's happening in these different aspects, but know where to focus my attention and go. Definitely changes, you know, earlier stage, you have to go create everything and you're going and creating, whereas now it's coming to me. Mm. And so, you know, you have to block out time to go create and pursue those initiatives because there's plenty of opportunities and things that you can improve that are coming towards you. So I think it's a lot of those things. I think one book that really has helped me through that, one of my favorite books is the hard thing about hard things. And I think they talk about a lot of those concepts in that book. And I remember reading that and it probably wasn't as relevant to me the first time I read it. And I probably read it 10 times now or listened to it on Audible. And I just did again about six months ago and it was just so relevant what they were talking about to where I feel like I'm dealing with. And, and it really helped me to figure out, hey, this is okay. And you know, uh, I think some of it's in your own head. Like I feel like me not being able to be in the weeds on certain things, you know, I'm like, am I contributing? Am I adding as much value as I was? Yeah. Um, and so there's that aspect that comes into it. Um, or, you know, carving out time to just really sit back and, and work on the business versus in the business, I think is something that takes, you know, time to get used to and comfortable with. Um, and then, you know, part of one thing I learned there and I was talking to, I have all these different ideas and things that I can think can be huge. And in the past, I would just take it and run with it and, and do some of them and hand others off. Whereas now I have to, you know, make sure that we're not overwhelming the engine with what we're pursuing at a time. So th those are the types of things that take getting used to. And I think it's a great challenge and it's definitely puts me out of my comfort zone. And I think a lot of our team, and I think that's when you kind of know that you're getting better and improving. And so yeah. just have to remember that and, and focus on that along the journey. So if, if the book that you're reading now that's resonating with you, and I'm sure it's one of many, but you mentioned the hard things about the hard thing about hard things, is there a book and this may be difficult to think all the way back, but is there a book that did or would have helped you back, let's say, if someone's listening and they've got 30 to 50 employees, they're, they're fast growing, but they're at that stage of the company. Is there a book you, you would recommend that they would, you think they might resonate with? Yeah, I think one of the most valuable books I've ever read, and everybody in our company's read it, um, who's in a leadership role, it's called The One Minute Manager. It's called The New One Minute Manager now. And it's a Kim Blanchard book. It takes about 45 minutes to read. And for me, I remember when I made, when I was at Xerox and I made that move from kind of top individual performer to manager, and I just was not naturally good at it. I don't think anybody is, to be quite honest. I don't think yeah. there's natural managers out there, but it gave me a framework that worked really well and that I thought was like scalable and that I can put my own style on. So the framework in the book is goal setting and helping team members really understand what success looks like and what the goal, you know, what, what success looks like catching them doing things right and praising them. So building the confidence as they're on that path towards the goal and that way they go faster and they're confident. And then naturally people get off track. And so it's kind of redirecting them and showing them back towards that goal. So uh, I love that. You know, when we had probably like 20 or 30 people, uh, stuff started to break. Um, because before that, you know, almost everybody would roll up through me and, and you know, I knew the framework. And I remember I was uh, at my house over the, the holidays and I was thinking like, hey, we need, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to retain our team members? How are we going to build really scalable structures? 
And I was like, what did I do when I had to start doing that? And I remember the book. And then we developed, we have a pretty formal leadership development curriculum. That book is one of the core things that we do with that group. And then there's a bunch of other modules that support it. But if you can establish a management and leadership philosophy that's scalable, that everybody in your company can, you know, knows and, and can speak to and is doing, um, but I think still is not so rigid that people can't put their own style and can't customize it to individual uh you know, team members, because I think everybody's at different phases of their career and people yeah. need types of support. But to me, that's where most companies kind of lack in that 30 to 50 uh, phase. And if you can nail that piece, then I think it unlocks, you know, kind of that next wave of growth. Um, and for your company to, you know, get to a hundred people and be able to do that in a way that is manageable and scalable and, and sturdy and not, you know, where, you know, you, you have crazy key man or key woman risk and things of that nature. Yeah. Well done. That that's exactly what what I wanted to hear. And I'm going to I'm going to check that book out. I've heard several people uh, mention it, but I've not read it before. Uh and like you said, at that stage, things start to break. And it's part of the process. Like you kind of got to break out of the old the old systems or lack thereof and implement new ones that that support where you are now, but it's a kind of a scary time as you're trying to figure out some of those things, right? For sure. No, I mean, I think that's uh if you think that things aren't breaking in your company, you're probably in big trouble because I think, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I see in our business today is, you know, we've definitely had a lot of success and done a lot of great things, but we have so much room for improvement. And I think the day that you feel that you don't have that room for improvement uh, is a scary day because, you know, I, I think that a company is a living, breathing thing and times are changing in a big way and they're going to continue to do so. And whether that's technology, whether that's your sector, whether that's uh, your size. And so to me, that's what makes it fun and kind of keeps the entrepreneurial aspect alive too, is you're just solving new problems, you know, every single day, week, month. And the more that you can build that into your culture where your team members are empowered and driven to see that problem and get excited about it because they know it's a way they can add value and, and solve for it. I think the better you are. And that's something we talk about a lot in our company. It's one of our core values is, you know, I know myself, our COO, our president, our CFO, our VP team, everybody's working on, you know, their areas where they're like, man, if we can figure this out and, and dial this in, it's going to unlock a lot of growth and potential for us. And so for me with a new team member, for them to just come give me another problem, like that, you know, I'd rather know than not know, but it's not that valuable because I've got a list of them and, you know, we're trying to work through them. But if they can take that and they can solve it and, and solve that for our company, there's crazy value that they can drive there. And so how do yeah. we ensure that we continue to build that type of mindset and culture as we as we scale, I think is one of the big focal areas for us currently. One of the, where my brain goes next is often when you see a company that's built a rocket ship is as fast as yours, that the speed itself creates trouble. Like it creates, uh, it strains all the systems, right? Like when you're adding that many clients or you're adding that many people, I think you mentioned earlier, 30 per month, like that speed can, can rattle the rattle the insides, right? Uh, and also you can see people burn out and, and move on. Like, man, we burned bright for a second. But I couldn't keep up with the pace or the pressure or the whatever, and I burned out, and I had to go find somewhere else. But you have such a high retention rate that I'm thinking, how 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 are you guys keeping from burnout being an issue or you know mass system failure with the amount of clients and people you're bringing on board at, at such a rate? 
Yep. So, I mean, I think that they're different, right? You always need to look on the mass system failure side. It's really looking at your systems and before they become big problems saying, where's the friction? You know, how can we solve for this? Um, and being really laser focused on those and breaking those up into different parts of your organization and having really talented people that are really focused on identifying those and fixing them before they become big issues. Yeah. On the people front, I think it's one of the most important things um, for any business leaders right now is, again, I, I really think that for us, our team is uh, priority number one, even above clients, because if we do that, the clients benefit, et cetera. We have some tools and things that we've done that I think help us that we've had for years. And so simple stuff, like we use 15.5, which is like the weekly uh, review software. It gives us a good pulse. People are able to report their bandwidth or sentiment, you know, give us more data. And so we can see people that are too high on bandwidth and we take action. I mean, we look at that, we get that, uh, those alerts every single week. And we've got a team of people that are really focused on making sure that it's a, a one-off and that we solve for it. Same thing on sentiment. Um, we have things that we do every year. Uh, like uh, we do a personal hedgehog exercise, which is also stolen from some good book. I'm blanking on, it might be good to great. Good to great. Yeah. But we really map out, you know, and we adjust people's roles. And so what are your passions and what are your superpowers? And then how do we tie them back to our economic engine that drives our business? So I think when you can get people in positions where the vast majority of their role is playing towards their strengths and their passions, then it does help avoid burnout. I know for myself, it does. Um, there's parts of my job I don't love, but I kind of need to do. And so if we can eliminate those as much as possible. And then we do a vital five uh, annual goals that every team member does and we track it really close. And so it's their earning goal for the year. It's what they their vision statement for their role is in a year from uh a year from when they do it, which we usually do this in January. It's the one or two skill sets they really want to master. It doesn't need to have to do with their job. It could be, I want to learn about real estate, whatever it is. Uh, it's their big personal goal. And then it's how they need to be supported by leadership to truly feel empowered. And so we'll track those things. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, I think the hardest part of scaling that is, you know, your middle management layer as you get bigger and you scale, because, you know, I, I do believe that we have a lot of room for improvement in that. But I, one thing I learned on myself is that for Grayson, uh, the only person that can control my own burnout and my own work-life balance is myself. And uh, if, I, if I don't know what to do or I need help, I need to reach out for help. And I've got a bunch of things that have worked for me over the years. But um, I think a lot of times when I see burnout for team members, not just in our company, but in general, and I was this person, I think a lot of times it's self-inflicted. And if you're counting on oh, somebody yeah. else to govern that for you, you're, you're going to fail. Um, it just won't work. And I think that there's companies that are definitely contributors to that. And I think there's things that we need to do better that will help us help our team members to be even better at that. But I think we also just need to encourage them to own that. And if they don't know how to reach out and we can help create accountability buddies, we can, you know, there's always a solution. And usually when we fail, it's that we don't know um, or we're not aware. And it's like, you're kicking yourself. You're like, man, I could have solved that. Or we could have, yeah. done that, or we would have gotten rid of that client if it's really like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of continuing to encourage that and have better leading indicators that show us those signs and then to over communicate as you scale. It's freaking awesome. Uh, I've been furiously taking notes. <laughs> I, I really do. I mean, the more I talk to you, I, I feel like you guys are building some best in class stuff in terms of not just client delivery, but, how you're taking care of your your people and seeing them really supported and optimized and and all of that is is really neat. Uh, so it's clear that you are passionate about this because you would not be doing all of this 
if this wasn't a real value of yours in the company, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it is common sense that people miss, which is like, we were all in all these roles at some point in our career. And I, I was super lucky. Again, I had this incredible mentor, but the company I worked for, a lot of people didn't like. Uh, a lot of people had terrible experiences. Um, and it was just like reflecting on that and seeing, well, what was the difference in my experience versus theirs? And, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, people are working to accomplish things that they want to accomplish in life that, that a lot of times don't have to do with their career. So I think the more that you know what they're trying to accomplish, what they care about, what they're trying to do, and the more that you help people do so, um, I think it builds loyalty, it builds happiness, it does all those. So I think a lot of it's common sense, just like I think a lot of the employee development stuff, you know, you can do it. Companies overcomplicate that, but you can be super resourceful with that. And, you know, it's almost like, sweat investment so if you just give it the time and you give it your own effort you use your network and your resources you could do some incredible stuff and you could bring in great speakers and you can create some pretty incredible training uh not even just beyond making them better at their job but making them better business people more savvy yeah. um you could do that stuff like we've been able to do a lot of that pretty much for free um now there's time right so we've we've invested time and carved out time and stuff but we haven't had to go you know, bring in the third party pro trainer very many times or this or that. It's just really, you know, somebody that's passionate about it, doing it and then tapping mm. the network that you have around you. Love it. I love it. Uh, man, I wanted to ask just because I've been curious this whole time. I love Venn diagrams and you've got one over your shoulder and I'm just curious what those three loops are. What the three that's personal hedgehog. I was doing a training with, um, some of our new managers about that. And, you know, that's the other thing with something like that, that tool works really, really well when facilitated really, really well. Yeah. When facilitated poorly, it, it's not going to hurt you, but it doesn't help. And so uh, that there, I was meeting with some of our leaders that are newer to the company and, and obviously we were explaining it, but we were explaining that, you know, really the individual, we want to hear their perspective very clearly on their passions. And it's like asking great questions, like what doesn't feel like work? In the last month, what were those moments where you were literally like fired up, you know, wanting to, you know, you felt amazing about yourself and you were so freaking proud. You wanted to go tell your parents or you wanted to tell your spouse or whatever. And you asked them those questions to help them mine it out. Because if you ask me, Grayson, what's your passion? I mean, I, that's it's so right? tough. Like, yeah. like, I mean, it's, it changes, right? Yeah. And then superpowers, it's, you know, same thing. It's like so, a lot of times what a person thinks their superpowers are, the manager may feel different and there might be some big blind spots or gaps. So those, I think it's facilitating. And then on the bottom, the economic engine, like that's our job. Like um, most team members, as much as we try so that they can see the entire playing field and they can see all the things that drive the economic engine for our business. You know, it's our job to figure out, wow, this person's super passionate here and they're super talented in this. You know, do we need to create a role for them or what role uh, ideally is going to maximize to where they're driving maximum value for our team, but playing towards their passion and strengths? Because that's like the trifecta. Right. And so that's that's what we were going through on that and um, mapping out. And so for us at this point, I think we have the tools like that. But again, the level of execution and facilitation in that and, um, you know, really helping to make sure that you get the right stuff down. And then you think critically is what we need to make sure that we keep doing better as we scale. I mean, do you ever get to a place with 500 people and 30 new coming in every time that you look at the answers to that and you go, well, shit, we hired you for this. But you, but this is spitting out something else, and I don't know if we have a need for that at this point. Is that ever, is that ever an issue? No, I mean I think um, we've hired the wrong people for sure, and I mean that's one of the things that we did. And 
you know, going forward, we won't have to hire 30 a month is my hope. Um, but we've had probably five months or so where we did have to do that. And so we built a really robust recruiting engine in house. We also have some a great third party partner we worked with for many years. Um, but one of the key KPIs we measure is having at least two super talented people on the bench. And so when we do that, then we can, for every role, then we can create roles for people. I mean, one of the really cool things when you're rapidly growing and then also um, we're not right now, but historically we've done acquisitions and we've acquired other companies is it creates all types of needs for new roles. And so like last year, I think we created like 20 new roles. Wow. And, um, you know, if you talk to the people that moved into a lot of those, a lot of them were, you know, not necessarily brand new team members. They were people that, you know, kind of maybe had outgrown their role or they were really good at it, but it wasn't their ultimate passion. And so then we were able to really align those things through that exercise. And I think so far this year, we've promoted like 65 people in turn or something like the stat was something like that last time I looked. So um, that's one of the great things, you know, you have, you know, growing pains with rapid growth for sure, like we talked about, but it also creates a ton of opportunity um, because, you know, gaps are created and, and, you know, we were always really lean on the ops side internally. Uh, it didn't make money. And, and so we try to do it as high quality, but efficiently as we can. And so now, you know, we're at the scale and size where, you know, those operational roles can bring, you know, tremendous amounts of value to the bottom line when done correctly. And so it creates a whole new set of opportunities for team members and things like that. Man, super cool. Awesome. Well, this has been so freaking fascinating. Thank you for taking your time. I'm going to get us into our lightning round questions now. So we've got five questions for you that we've asked every founder so far on the podcast, starting with number one. Uh, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Um, own your own experience and ask for the order. Ask for what you want, what you need. Make it really explicitly clear where you're trying to go. Love that. Question number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Uh, the important best would be importance of core values and being authentic to those core values. And I don't know if there's one worst. I mean, I see a lot of things that people will say that I just disagree with. Um, but I think one of the things people are way, most entrepreneurs I think are way too dependent on the rear view mirror and they don't have a good, uh, front windshield to be able to see what's coming. And so to me, placing a huge emphasis on that front windshield would be uh, more important to me than the rear view mirror. But I don't what's know that anyone ever told me that. To me, best... it's accounting is the rear view mirror and then finance is the front windshield, right? What's the best way to get better at the the forward facing you know, window, the forecasting? What's the best way for somebody to get better at that skill? Simplify your economic engine, what, what drives the financial engine for your business, break it down into three or four things, and then work with uh, a smart you know, finance person to build a model where you can you know, input the metrics that you can hit there and you can see the different outcomes that will be created. I think you know, having a simple model with leading indicators is the key. And it's the difference that I see between you know, really successful companies and companies that are kind of flying by the seat of their pants and poking along. Yeah, super, super important and helpful. Okay, question number three. What causes you the most stress or worry currently leading your organization? It's always the same thing. It's the people. You know, I it when we don't deliver for our team, it bothers me uh, tremendously when we, um, 
when we have team members that aren't happy, which is going to happen when you have 500 people, it really bothers me. And so it's always the people and making sure that we're delivering for them and that, uh, you know, they're getting the full power digital experience and we're helping them hit their goals. Sure. Okay. Question number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? To be the most valued and respected private agency in the world. Wow. How long do you give yourself to do that? I think, uh, two years, hopefully. I mean, we've been on that journey now for three or four years. That's been everybody in our company would tell you that's the vision. That's what we're after. And I think we're probably one of five or, or so that are in that conversation. And so we need to continue to do what we're doing. And, uh, I think we can get there. Hell yeah. I love it. All right. Question number five. This is our creative question. A little break from, uh, the business ones. If you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past, but the rule is you only get to tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window as you pass by. When, when are you going back, and what is the message that you would pass along to that younger version of yourself? Oh, man. I could think of many periods that I should go back to. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say probably uh, it would be when I uh, left Xerox to start my first company. And I would say uh, just because somebody has been successful doesn't mean that they know shit or know anything. So don't, uh, don't overvalue what you, you know, the perception somebody's putting out on their success and what they're doing and uh, don't take it for face value. Mm, love it. Well, man, this has been, seriously i have been there's been so many moments i'm like holy shit this guy's brilliant grayson thank you so much for taking this time to share with our audience to kind of open up the hood uh, of what you guys have built there and are building and continuing to build uh, i know i've taken tons of notes i know hopefully our audience is is as well and man i'd love to have you back on sometime to, to have a round two in this conversation yeah for sure thanks drew really enjoyed it it was great talking to you thanks for having me on and for all the uh great questions. It's pretty fun to get to talk about culture and people and growth. So my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Grayson. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.